Great. Welcome to the History of LA SCIA one-on-one sessions. I'm Junior Francis, and this series celebrates uh, SCIA, Rocksteady, and Vintage Reggae scenes in Southern California and beyond through insightful conversations with legends and modern day players, including those behind the scene. This is the 28, that's 2-8 one-on-one sessions on our 13th in this new podcast and YouTube channel format. Thanks to everyone for their support. Our guests, Tonight is veteran Los Angeles-based trumpeter, Ethan Avenari. Hope I said it correctly, you'll correct me in a moment. Ethan is a leader and mastermind behind Western Standard Time Scare Orchestra, who have just released their album, Tombstone, congratulations. And if I'm not mistaken, my memory serves me correctly, this is their fourth album release. Ethan, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Listen, did I slaughter your last name, sir? It was perfect. Uh, yeah, thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Once again, congratulations on the release of your, is that your fourth album? It's actually our third uh, LP, but we put out a fair amount of uh, 45s. So we have Quiet. volume one, volume two, sort of uh, the, uh, the Skylights tribute versions, and this is our first that's all our own music. So. Mm-hmm. Well, so we're right into the album discussion. <laughs> right. <laughs> so well, how was, we're how already was, working on the fourth one. So yes, uh-huh. you, you pre- <laughs> And tell us the title of it again. Tombstone. Tombstone, right. Yes. And the, there was a massive release party, one of the best concert of, concerts I've gone to in recent years. And I'm not sure if it's because of the pandemic why it came off like that, but boy, I was moved <laughs> with compassion, Mandy. Uh, I guess yeah, the, the feeling, everything was superb. Yeah, the feeling was different for sure. A lot what? more sort of like that thankful, warm family vibe that uh, that was a really, really nice, nice feeling. Yeah. And has been missing now since the pandemic or way Absolutely. before. I, yeah. Right. I think people took it for granted, maybe, and now they're they're that much more thankful when it when they do have, mm-hmm. you know, that that mm-hmm. live experience. And were you satisfied with the turnout? Oh yeah, it was great. It was almost sold out, um, and you know they changed it last minute where they only allowed people that were vaccinated. Uh, there were no more uh, of the um, showing negative um, negative COVID tests, so um, there were. You know, I think at this point, there are so many reasons not to go out that I think everybody's numbers are, are lower than normal for the most part. But I was super happy. I think it was a really good turnout. I, I talked to some people that flew out from Northern California and, and uh, Arizona and just wow, you know, people drove, drove hours and hours to, to make it. And it meant a lot. So, yeah. yeah. And I'm quite sure they all had a wonderful time. Yes. Mm-hmm. This set was quite uh, a long one, so everyone got their money's worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we had to we had to get it all out of our system. It was uh, it was a very cathartic. Yes, thing. we 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 were missing that, and uh, we we didn't want the mm-hmm. our fans to sort of not get their money's worth. So. And you didn't charge the farmers ransom for the uh, uh, entrance fee, considering how many people were in the band. No, and I, I think that that's one of the really great parts of our history is that the majority of our shows have actually been free shows. Um, free outdoor concerts that are all ages. So yeah, I think a right. lot of, um, you know, the fact that really anybody, no matter what their age or their sort of financial situation is, we're not that kind of band where you have to spend $50 to see us. And, you know, people have to wonder whether they can pay 
for their food for the month versus buy the ticket. It's it's kind of an easy decision. Twenty dollars, and you get to see uh, you know hours and hours of great music. Right. And so, how is the album sale going so far? Oh, it's great. We actually, um, you know, vinyl right now is taking so long, and we really appreciate Not all the fans sense. to produce or to make to press. Yeah, to press. Ah, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the recording actually was pretty quick, but the uh, the pressing takes. You know, it used to take you know four to six weeks. It's now taking four to six plus months, even longer than that. Sometimes. I may ask why. Um, For my own information. Well, there's. From my understanding, it's primarily that there aren't that many uh, places that make them. So there's kind of a limited number of places that actually make and have these machines um, and also vinyl in general. But I think now that sort of vinyl has become this really mm -hmm. sought after, this is really the only sort of uh, viable physical, uh, you know, product that people can sell that all these big acts like you know big pop stars they're they're pressing five ten twenty thousand uh, pieces of vinyl whereas you know with us it's you know five hundred or a thousand is small potatoes so mm -hmm. it's it's uh it's kind of a i think a, a supply and demand thing and those those pressing plants are so overwhelmed with large orders from you know larger bands that are asking you know, for and how many did you press was uh we don't this is your first run, right? Yeah, we don't actually uh, press all that much. We pressed 500. All of our albums, we've pressed 500. Why is that so? Um, it's such a niche market, I think. Um, and we all do it. We put it out ourselves. The first album, we did it through a small label in uh, uh, the Pacific Northwest. Who doesn't know? They don't necessarily have a huge name. They just, uh, it was sort of friends of the band. And... Um, it was sort of like scratch our back, we'll scratch yours kind of a thing. Mm. Um, so we haven't really had that backing of a large label or, or big distributors or anything. So it's all been from our websites and our shows and we don't play that many shows. So it's uh, the people that do have the vinyl, I think feel really kind of special about that, that mm. you know, there are only a handful of people that actually hold these, these uh, pieces of vinyl, so. Yes, uh, interesting. Yeah. And, uh, uh... I, I know personally, but I'm asking for the benefit of um, our producer, Eric, and the uh, viewing audience, who are the guest musicians and vocalists who appeared uh, on the album and also at the concert? Yes. Um, so the the band we had, um, not that he was a guest, but sort of uh, Brian Dixon was a, a formative, you know, a big part of the the formation of the band and mm -hmm. a big part of the the history of the band and was the main producer um, of the first couple albums with me and Brian Wallace. Um, he was a big, big part of the band, but he since actually moved and started a family and started a whole new life that's not necessarily music related. So um, he hasn't been playing as many of our shows. He played a few here and there. We played a uh, the uh, Supernova Scott Festival, and he flew out for that one. So we do sh some shows here and there with him. So he was on the album, which is really um, made me really happy that we were able to get him in the studio up there and record the the rhythm guitar or for for most of the tracks. And then um, we have Chris Murray on vocals, and actually Chris Murray wrote that song. So the song that's on there is actually his song that he recorded. 
uh, quite a while ago. And when we asked him a few years ago which one, which songs he would kind of see uh, performing with the band, uh, that was one of the ones he said, it's kind of a rare one that not a lot of people know, but I really think it would work well with the band. And we played it live pre-pandemic. Um, and it was a big hit. We loved it. The fans loved it. So I thought it would be a perfect uh, addition to the album because the whole idea was to have music that the band or people, like they're not necessarily covers of people that we don't necessarily know personally. Um, so it was, uh, I wrote most of the songs and then Chris had that one that he wrote. And then we also had uh, Jesse Wagner from the Agrolites um, co-write with me. So I wrote the music and uh, he wrote the vocal line and the lyrics. So um, that's a kind of a 50-50 with me and Jesse, and that was really fun uh, to collaborate with him and see what he can do. And you know, when I first wrote the music side of it, I had no idea even what it would be called, what the words were gonna be, what the melody okay. line would be. And when he gave me that first one where he kind of like sang it into his phone, it was like, oh, this is, this is gonna be incredible. He sounded just like that old crooner uh, Sinatra vibe, which is exactly what I think fits really well with this band. So I was super happy with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of a smaller um, one solo on the album actually has Luis Bonilla, who's originally actually from Los Angeles, but moved to New York a long time ago and uh, did a lot of touring and recording uh, with the Scottalites. So he, uh, I, I knew of him um, and never really met with met him or or played with him, but uh, he was a person that I kind of wanted to pull into the band. He's now a professor of jazz in Europe, I think in Austria or something. And I emailed him and uh, he responded and uh, I got him on there. So that was exciting to have somebody that was affiliated with the Skydalites um, in, you know, in the recording process. It was really exciting. So. Mm -hmm. And where can the album be obtained uh, someone who wants to get a copy? Well, uh, one, of our, uh, one of our shows, um, you know, we, we don't play a lot of shows, but we, we are booking shows. We're, we're going to be playing um, at Morro Bay next month. Uh, we're going to also announce um, a show uh, on Thursday. We're going to announce, but I can tell you guys now uh, that we're going to be playing up, back up in San Jose for a show um, up at the Ritz. So we'll be playing that, um, and we're working on some other shows um, in 2022. But right now, the vast majority of the people that are ordering our album are ordering from our website. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Are you getting orders from India, Pakistan, uh, Jamaica? Just throwing out some names. Okay. It's exciting, and actually, I'm I'm working on some distribution, sort of like DIY uh, distribution. So I have a couple people uh, in Mexico City that are are selling it, are going to sell it. Uh, those packages already went out. Um, I have uh, Malaysia, Korea, Japan. Um, I have Spain and uh, Germany, and then also uh, the Netherlands. So that we have some distribution happening, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, and direct orders before we kind of talked about the distribution to our fans, uh, we've sold to Italy and Spain, uh, France, um, we sold to yeah Japan, Mexico, South America, you know, in South America, Canada, all over the place. So it's uh, kind of fun to see, you know, that we had an order uh, uh, in Australia, which was cool, you know, recently. So 
I, it's nice. I'm filling out all those customs forms myself to, to send all those out. But Australia is big and scary, a stranger call. They I are, but, but you know, um, this particular person that ordered it is actually on the west western coast, which uh, doesn't see almost any music. So it's mm -hmm. kind of, he's kind of in the sticks over there. He's going to be playing our record, you know, in the middle of nowhere. I'd be remiss not to ask about the LA-based fans. How are they responding? Uh, to the okay. album? Yeah, to the purchase, right? Are they oh, they love it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are really excited with, you know, hearing our own music because I think mm -hmm. we've been known, some people have called us, I don't agree with it, but people consider us sort of a cover band, um, which I don't really totally agree with. Uh, I can elaborate if you want me to, but um, I don't think of us as a cover band, but I think it's it feels really good, especially when we were playing it live where we saw the response right there and then. Um, with people dancing and creating that kind of trad scout um, pit in the middle <laughs> where everybody's circling around. It's, it's a cool, it's a slower version of that punk ska thing where everybody's, you know, skanking in the middle um, and all the cheering and all, you know, it seemed like the response was really, really good for the, and that just, it, there's a different feeling when you're playing your own uh, compositions. Um, so I think the response has been really good. Interestingly, you said, not a cover band because I'm getting ready to start a cover band. Oh yeah, nice. <laughs> and we'll be playing Dan German and 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 Roland Alfonso, Dorian Schaefer, as they were played back then, without any compromising. I'm nice. Just I'm just kidding. <laughs> what is a dream? Nice. Well, just this is, this was a dream, and I made it happen. So you got to oh, just make go. it happen. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. So let's talk about uh, get sort of personal now. Uh, where were you born and raised? I was uh, born in um, in Israel, southern Israel. Oh, okay. Um, so we moved when I was seven. Um, from there, we I was born in the desert. In the, in those that's why you know that Bedouin ska and some of the stuff Naftuli, some of these um, uh, songs that we've been uh, releasing the last couple of years that are more you know written personally by by my, myself have that sort of Middle Eastern vibe to it. Is because that's sort of the the sound that I grew up with, so um, that's that is a big influence on the music that I I like. You know, like when we play Frankenstein ska, those kinds of kind of Middle Eastern sounding um, melodies and chords chord changes um, speak to me in a different way. So um, yeah, I was I was born not necessarily raised because up to seven I was there and then moved to Southern California with my family. Mm -hmm. But you do have memory or, uh, of hearing those songs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. That, that was all around us, especially in the South, where there were a lot of, uh, lot of Jewish families, but also a lot of Arab families. And the, that music was heard, you know, mm -hmm. on the streets and, you know, concerts all the time. It wasn't uh, considered, uh, you know, out of the ordinary or exotic. It was just, that was the sound. Which was going to be my next question now, your earliest musical influences? Uh, musical influences. Um, well, honestly, back when, when I was in middle school, um, there was... I that would be here in the States since you... In the States, yeah. I mean, when I was really young, my, I mainly listened to the music that my mom and dad really liked. Uh, and the majority of that was actually um, soul, and uh, funk and jazz. American soul. 
Right, from the United States. Because my mom is actually American. She was mm -hmm. born in Chicago. Oh, okay. And my father was uh, born in Romania. And uh, they met in Israel. So they moved, uh, he <laughs> moved in the 40s, and he, she moved uh, after World War II, and then she moved in the 60s and met him uh, mm -hmm. there. And that's where they had their, you know, you know built their family. Right. So, um, so we were listening to mainly her records, my mom's records. So, you know, Aretha Franklin, all, all that old, old uh, American music, popular music. The Beatles also, we listened to some Beatles too. Mm -hmm. But I remember, you know, Aretha was a big, big part of what I, what I listened to as a young, young boy. Um, once, once we moved to, um, to America, that's when I started getting exposed. We, there was a radio station, I think it was 88.3 or 88.7, that played uh, South African music. And I just kind of stum stumbled upon it when I was turning the dials and I, and I heard some Soweto South African music. And I thought, this is really incredible. It's totally different than what I'm hearing. You know, I'm hearing like, you know, the Thompson Twins and, you know, all this uh, 1980s kind of pop music, um, you know, hollow notes and stuff like that. And then I hear this stuff with all this percussion and beautiful guitar melodies and just so much feeling and soul behind it. And I thought, this is incredible. And I think that that was sort of that beginning of being able to kind of take in uh, reggae and all the what that came with. So a couple of years after that, that's when I uh, first started listening to reggae and I, I got the Uprising album on tape um, from Bob Marley and then also King Yellow Man from uh, Yellow Man. So that I and I played those forever and ever and ever and then started listening to UB40, some of the earlier albums. Um, so I got really, really into reggae and I actually went to Reggae Sunsplash when I was in like seventh grade, I think, where our friend's mom all drove us to the Greek theater and we watched Steel Pulse and you know, all these, uh, all these amazing reggae acts live with horns. And I, you know, at that time I was already playing trumpet. So I saw, I thought, wow, horns with reggae. And I thought, this is incredible. So I think that kind of got me going to, uh, to listen to Jamaican music. So interesting, you know, fun. Where were you living at that time? Um, in the South Bay near Torrance. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so they drove you all the way to Reggae Sunsplash. Was that your request or she just wanted to take you? Um, no, we really wanted to, all of us. The, my my friends, um, Chris and Steve Aguilar, and then also my brother was also into reggae. We all kind of got exposed to it at the same time. And actually it was my cousin, Lisa, who who ended up buying us those tapes because she, she loved reggae. And so it was sort of like this family family thing. So, yeah. Well, when yep. did Skia enter your life and about what time and what were you doing? Yeah, so I exposed to Skia. Right. So, in a sense, I, it's distinctively different from Steel Pulse and Bob Marley. And oh, Bob. absolutely. Absolutely. Except for the Bob Marley, when I, um, I got, I feel like Ska was meant to come to me because it came from a few diff different directions. It was, it was meant to, it was meant to be. So, <laughs> I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't get away from it. It was it was it was coming to me from different directions. So um, I loved African music. Period. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when I when I listened to reggae, I really loved it. So I was reggae first for me. I didn't know the history behind anything yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was playing in uh, a ska band um, that my brother formed, and it was more third wave. And I liked it. I liked it enough. And I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I get to play my trumpet and people seem to really like it. It's fun. Um, And then a friend of mine who also really, really got into reggae, he he kept showing me all these different artists, like the gladiators and all these different artists, uh, culture and everybody. And I thought, okay, he's he's a good resource to listen to good music. He was kind of an addict of, of music. And he uh, he ended up for Christmas one year um, getting the Bob Marley, you know, there was like a Bob Marley, like uh, big collection. It was like a massive collection. I probably some people remember it, but it had Bob Marley from all different, you know, they had like small studio stuff, acoustic stuff. They had early Bob Marley where he when he was playing with uh, the Scottalites, uh, you know, all the older stuff mm-hmm. and then the more recent stuff that he did in the, the late 70s. And and um, so That's I kind of got exposed to it all. Sons of Freedom back set. Right, exactly. That's what it was. So um, when I heard that older stuff, I, w- I thought, is that even really him? And then I started looking into it a little bit more because I was like, you know, that doesn't sound like the same music, but then I started reading up on it a little bit more. So I knew about the music, but I felt like it was this sort of like this faraway thing that I really just didn't know anyone else that really wanted to play that kind of music. And what what was interesting was throughout that whole time, the LA scene was blowing up. Ah. You know, this was this was, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, exactly when when the scene was just like you know, rumbling. Yes, indeed. But I was too young. I wasn't driving yet. And I had no idea what was happening over there. So um, fast forward, I go, I'm in college. And I started playing, you know, with different jazz bands. I was playing in in, in, uh, at the university at UC Irvine. And I I was playing my trumpet a lot. And I was playing with different bands, all different styles of music. I formed even like a ska band with Chris Stofan, who actually ended up being in the Allentons with me. So we did, we did, we went to school at UC Irvine and this is sort of like Orange County. So we were playing ska. So that was, that was fun, but that, I didn't really feel like we could really do anything with it. It wasn't really a real band where we were performing. We didn't know how to book ourselves yet or anything. It was just kind of a fun rehearsal band. So one night um, at the Ant Hill pub, which was like the on campus, uh, you know, bar, but they had, they had, bands perform there and I go there in there with my girlfriend and uh and I start walking up the stairs and I'm like what is this music and I walk up and this band is playing and they are just incredible two trumpets full horn section berry sax uh they had a steel band pan player they had all this crazy stuff, beautiful singing. The drummer was like just killing. He was great, great. And I'm like, man, this band is amazing. And I was just like jaw dropping, like taking this all in. They played, I think, at least a couple sets. And then at the end of the night, 
I went up to the, one of the trumpet players and uh, I said, what is this music? And he said, uh, this, this is traditional ska, this is Jamaican ska. I said, I want to play this music. Do you know if there are any bands that are kind of like you that would ever need a trumpet? Well, I'm sure for me saying the Steel Pan uh, player, this was Mobtown. I couldn't have known. <laughs> yeah, so Mobtown played at the university, and it was totally by chance. It was not a ticketed thing. You just walk in. So I didn't know that this band was playing or what this band was. And um, I ended up talking to Robert. I mean, my girlfriend actually left. She, she was like, all right, I'm going to go back home. Because <laughs> you know? I was like completely like, though nothing else was important at that point. I was also, I was about three, four drinks in. So I was, you know, feeling good and loving the music. And uh, so I ended up talking with Robert for quite a while. And he took my number. This was pre-cell phones and all that stuff. And uh, I said, please take my number if you know of any bands. He goes, I think that there might be a band that might be looking for something. But I don't know for sure. But I'll, I'll definitely forward you forward them the number. I'm not not going to promise anything. I said, but let's keep in contact. You know, what's your phone? So we exchanged phone numbers. Um, and I just really, I dug his playing, but I also thought he was a really cool guy. We're still friends. We, we still chat online and stuff. Uh, he moved to Arkansas, but um, great guy. Um, so he, I got a phone call from Tommy from the Allentons two weeks later. Said, uh, we're looking for a trumpet player. Um, we'd like for you to come into a rehearsal and maybe audition so we can hear hear you. So I came in. They were they were rehearsing a couple times a week, um, so it was pretty easy. And at the time, I wasn't really doing a whole lot. I was really young. Um, this was I was still in college, but you know I was just playing in my school band and and studying. I wasn't I didn't have a full time job or anything like that. So I made that drive up from from Orange County, and after the first song, it was pretty much after the first song, they said, do you want to join the band? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I would love to. I lo this is great. And this was also, um, you know, exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for a musical outlet. I wanted to play my trumpet more, and I love this music. And this was kind of a dream come true. I thought, this is, this is incredible. And they said, we have a show. We have a big show on the Sunset Strip, you know, in like a week and a half. So can you make it? I said, yes, definitely. So um, we ended up playing, um, and I think I'm almost positive, we've done that a few times, but I think we were opening up for Hepcat. It was a really, really big show. And I was like so wowed because it was like wall-to-wall -wall people and the, the fans were just so just like, so excited and I thought man this I want to be part of this scene this scene because this was sort of like the kind of the tail end was still super hopping uh, <clears throat> but this was part of that famed 90s uh trad ska scene you know um I think it was the whiskey or something I think it was the whiskey and it was packed and I thought man <laughs> I want to do this again <laughs> so yeah I was I was super happy <laughs> yeah so what a baptism so uh Let's talk about the LA uh, ska scene and what is unique about it. Yeah. Then and now. Uh, the LA ska scene? Yes, sir. 
versus different different genres or different parts of the world? More specifically, uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Then again, you have toured, right? Yeah, right. You're yeah. Right. So I'm I'm wondering if you mean like versus like Mexico City and and Barcelona. No, let's stick. Let's stick with LA. Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, one thing that I have noticed is the music um, is very, very true to its origins. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that, um, that, that we do and we have done very well is to mimic that style fl fluently mm -hmm. as if, if you closed your eyes and you didn't know who was playing, you wouldn't think that it's somebody that has never been to Jamaica mm -hmm. and looks a certain way. They think it sounds like the original yes. people. And the other thing is, I think of ourselves as sort of like a like a, a stacked football team or basketball team where we have a really, really deep bench, right? We don't We don't necessarily have just like one person that can do this thing. We have a long, long list of incredible drummers. And really, in my mind, uh, bass is definitely important. You have to know what you're doing in ska bass. Um, you definitely need to know rhythm guitar, you know, to get that, that feel. I think that's super important. And there are a, a good handful of, of people that can play that style, especially from, we're talking specifically LA. Um, Brian Dixon being, I think, the first person that comes to my mind um, in terms of rhythm from from the Scott period all the way to skinhead reggae to you know Roxy, all all those different genres, he he nailed. But um, in my mind, I think the drums are the heart of it all, um, and we have such a long list. If I made the list, it would be very long, and I, I don't want to miss, you know, leave well, anybody drum, out. Drum, drummers in Los Angeles who can- In Los Angeles. I did not know we have that many. I, I, I can count five. You can go beyond five? I think so. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, we have Oliver Oliver Charles. Oh, okay, right, all right. And Farrar. Mm -hmm. We have, um, we have uh, Corey Horn. Mm -hmm. We have Scott Abels. I mean, Scott Abels was, Definitely played in the scene. I know he's more Fresno, and, so, and actually, on, honestly, so is um, so is Brian Dixon. There's actually a Fresno thing with Checkmate and all those bands. That there was definitely some, something good in the water over there, um, and a lot of them p got pulled down to LA because the scene was bigger. Mm -hmm. But like Los Hooligans and all that. Mm -hmm. um, but there are we have uh, some good contemporary drummers as well too. What's that? We have some good contemporary drummers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, Eric, uh, and actually what's what's really nice with this band is I feel like we've had, I mean, Corey is, I think of Corey as our drummer. He is, he is our drummer. Mm -hmm. But the first album we had Gil Sharon and uh, Corey on there, which I think was, was a nice mix because Gil also uh, plays uh, that style extremely well. Super, super, uh, fluent in that style um but then on the our next album we had scott abel scotty abel's um corey and oliver charles on there mm. and then this album we have uh both corey and then fritz 
um, from the study 45. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think, uh, he's, he's a special drummer. I think he, and I think all of them, they, they've, they listen to the music enough to where it's just second nature. Yeah. It's, it's in their blood at this point. It's the, they're not thinking about it. It's, it just happens. Um, and I think he, early kind of of it, it was very difficult. Uh, I think Corey got so, and some of the other musicians got some lessons from Lloyd. Scatalized. Oh, absolutely. There, I mean, a lot of them actually have nicknames that have to do with Lloyd because yeah. that's really he 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 made that sound, and that's um, they're all mimicking or reinterpreting his his style. And he he also played differently later on in his career than he did earlier. Give me a definition. Um, just differently. He he had a different different swing, a different feel on the hi hat. Um, with his, the early early stuff versus the later stuff, um, so he was in his own way um, evolving, evolving, right? So you know what 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 I saw when I saw them live, um, the times that I did, um, I, I saw them at least with with the original people. Uh, I'd say it about ten times, but um, so I got a certain version of him. But people that might have seen him uh, earlier on i know they took a quite a long hiatus but um you know if you were at that first first gig or you know those handful of situations or in the studio mm-hmm. you would see that he played differently um but what we were i think a lot of us that listen to the music we listen more to their older stuff and not necessarily as much to, to the newer albums we mm-hmm. we listen to the foundation sounds and that's what we're really trying to like pull from and, mm. and mimic, so. Interesting, yeah. Um, uh, let's talk about the formation of uh, Full Spectrum and uh, Kingston's Care Collective. You actually were part of, and if I'm not mistaken, formed those bands. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was sort of me kind of dabbling. Uh, the Full Spectrum was first and was sort of On getting- time for the, for- um, It was right after the, uh, the, the end of my playing with the Allentons. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, as soon as yeah. I finished, what's that? Yeah. Year. For posterity, so that- Not a year. Somehow someone remember, oh yeah, that was exactly that. Year. It's such a long time ago. I, I don't think of it in specific dates. Um, but approximately? I would say that it was probably around 99, 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2000 was when we recorded our first EP with Full Spectrum. And Full Spectrum was interesting because I had already made, forged those friendships with people in the scene and people knew, you know, my ability to play as well, you know, as well or as badly as I play. I, they, 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 I got my name out. People, people knew, knew me as a trumpet player that, that could play. Consistently and, brilliant. I mean, I mean, let's see. You won't praise yourself, but I'll praise you. Okay. Well, you know, I, I made some good friendships and uh, people started asking me to play with them, but I really was interested in um, leading bands and, and forming something that I can call my own. Sort of being in control of my destiny, sort of, musically and professionally and all that stuff. And I had a certain mind uh, at that time that I really wanted to explore the mix of ska and jazz i had kind of i really kind of liked the idea of sort of straddling those two worlds and 
seeing where that takes us. Mm-hmm. So we would we would do a lot of jazz covers out of the real book, but also write songs that had sort of a jazzy element to them. <clears throat> chordal chordal complicated, you know, chordally complicated and um, thicker harmonies and different things like that that weren't necessarily as prevalent in ska. But mm-hmm. I kind of like the idea of keeping the rhythm of ska, but having jazz, jazzier elements. Because I know that the Scottalites definitely had jazz elements in their playing and that they did a lot of listening to that music. And that's and where it really... For themselves as jazz musicians. Yeah, so I think, I think of the Scottalites, um, they were mainly, I'd say maybe 70, 80%, if we're going to talk, talk numbers, ska, and then 20 to 30%, you know, ish, uh, jazz. Whereas I kind of wanted to see where that push it a little bit more in the, like 50, 50, maybe 50 jazz, 50, you know, so a little bit more jazz, but not completely jazz. But by and large, it's got the like musicians that were trained jazz musicians who started exactly. playing skia when it evolved from early Jamaican R&B into skia. Absolutely. Yes. Before, on or about the time of independence. Right. Exactly. So it's not necessarily that it was something revolutionary, but it was just sort of this, um, experimentation with a mix of things so the ingredients were the same but it was like maybe a little bit more of this ingredient and see how that would taste kind of a thing so i was kind of just experimenting with experimenting with that idea and it originally started with corey on drums mm-hmm. and brian dixon on guitar um and then also i had robert in there robert um played guitar, uh, rhythm guitar also in or lead guitar, I should say, lead guitar. Brian so you had the core of you had the core. Yes, but it all came from the ska scene, and then I had a couple people horn-wise that um, were more jazz players that I didn't necessarily feel like was in the ska scene at that particular time. There are certain players like Kincaid, um, uh, you know Smith. He definitely would be at that kind of jazz level, but he already played my instrument, so I thought, okay, and he was obviously. Plenty busy with with Hepcat, so there was, and I didn't know them personally at all. So, um, but I was looking for those musicians that could that could play jazz really really um, well. So I kind of mixed it in a little bit with some jazz horn players, and then also with that traditional ska foundation um, rhythm section. So that's how that started. And how um, was full spectrum received by ska fans? Honestly, I think a lot of people were skeptical. Um, I don't, I think between, you know, if I really think about it, it was sort of like a half-baked idea. It wasn't necessarily, I feel like I got the recipe right with this band and with Full Spectrum, it was sort of like, I had to pay my dues and get my booze. (laughs) So, you know, some people dug it a lot. And and I remember Cheeky's um, coming up to me at one of our shows and he said, you know, what you're doing is really important for the scene. Keep doing it, you know? And that was really a, a nice thing because, um, you know, I wasn't getting a whole lot of praise yet. Good credit him, excellent LA bass player. Played yes. for a numerous bands. Oh yeah, Chiki's Lazoya. Um, so um, that, was a, that was a cool conversation that we had. And I, it was kind of what I needed to hear because I felt like People just weren't digging it enough. Um, and we were doing some more family shows and we were selling albums and stuff, but it wasn't in the scene. The scene wasn't really super into it. Um, because also we ended up 
Corey and Brian Dixon, right at that time, that 2000-ish time period, mm-hmm. they were getting pulled hard by the Agrolites. So, and they started touring all over the place and um, they had absolutely zero time. And so the personnel changed. So Full Spectrum ended up being all musicians that weren't necessarily from the Scott scene. And it, yeah. uh, it, it suffered, I think. You know, the rhythm wasn't 100% there. Um, I never really zeroed in on a good bass player that would really do a good job with the style. Um, so just struggled from that standpoint. Partially from just finding the right people, the personnel. And from the, uh, the formation of the Kingston Scare Collective a, a few years after, right? Yes. And that was, that was actually, um, I can't remember. That, I remember you, you and I and Eric met at some place, a coffee place or something. Yeah. yeah. And I remember us having the conversation. I don't remember if the band had formed yet or you guys were the reason why it formed? No, it was an idea that I had ever since I arrived here in California that there should be a scare band to back artists when they came to town. Right, right. Right, right. And so, you know, Eric and I, we bounced the idea back and forth. And then he thought you would be the best person to contact to do that. Yeah. And some legends so I think, were coming into town. And, uh, yeah. So I, right, so that was where that idea came from. Okay. So. Um, cause I remember there was also this idea that I wanted to recreate the Scottalites and do covers of their music. Cause I love their music so much. And it kind of like tells a good story because full spectrum started off with, you know, mainly jazz stuff. And I was doing ska and all that. Um, and, and that was my first sort of foray in, into the world of being a band leader. And then this Kingston ska collective was, um, that next step before uh, Western Standard Time started where it was the same number of musicians. So it was essentially a true cover band. We were covering the the Scottalites discography um, with the instrumentation of the Scottalites. So it was essentially like, there was nothing really different about it um, in a creative way. It was just sort of, we were trying to do our best to play their music the way they played it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm when trying we, to juggle my memory. I didn't know you had so many uh, actors in the Kingston Scare Collective as you have now in Western Standard. Oh no, no, yeah. So Standard. sort of, I think of it as sort of like that chapter two, and chapter three was Western Standard Time. So the, okay. I think we had maybe eight, at the most nine people in in uh, mm-hmm. um, Kingston Scott Collective. So it was the same instrumentation as the Scottalites. Same. Mm-hmm. You know, we had our two tenors, and we had the trumpet and the trombone, uh, lead guitar, you know, all that stuff, just like the, the Scottalites had. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, we played some fun shows, but we didn't necessarily play tons of shows. We didn't do any touring or anything like that. We recorded an EP, um, and actually, um, yeah, um, it just di- didn't, didn't necessarily go... As, as far as I would have hoped, but I think that also got me ready for the concept of Western Standard Time, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it gets so fascinating, especially for you now. So you were part of a uh, backing band that backed up several Jamaican foundation, Mothers and Fathers. Uh, 
share with uh, us some of your experiences and I will rattle off the names and then we go over them one by one. Sure. A roll call, Eric Montemaris, uh, Phyllis Dillon, Derek Morgan, uh, Prince Buster, Rico, Owen Gray. So let's start with Montemaris. Any fond memories or sad memories working with him? Uh, you work with Alan Turns in Long Beach back in 1999, just before the end of the millennium. Right. We actually uh, also backed him up again uh, at the Dub Club uh, more recently. I don't mm -hmm. remember exactly which year that was. So there were a couple of times that we worked with Eric Monty Morris mm -hmm. and I just I just loved his music. I mean, I knew maybe a song or two. I think we covered um, Penny Real or something like that. Um, one of his big hits. Yeah. 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 And I think uh, also Hepcat played that one, too. Uh, that that was a big hit that I was familiar with, but one of the great parts of of working with him was listening to all of his music. I was I, there was not a bad track in any of it, and you know back then we spent I say a solid month rehearsing the music wow. because we weren't writing anything down. It was about um, you know memorizing the music, so we would rehearse twice a week for four or five, sometimes six weeks straight. And we would we would go to uh, Commerce, you know, East, East LA um, to rehearse at our regular rehearsal place, which was our bass player's house, um, Lee's house. Um, the, but I remember going all the way to like Tommy's house, which was like in the IE. Um, so we did a lot of work getting ready for him. And uh, it was a blast, I mean, I think, he was great. We were, I think, even in the studio with him. We did a, a studio thing at uh, Casey's studio, KUCI, I think. So um, we did a few things with him. So it, it made it really worth worth all the hard work that we that we yes. did to get it ready. So mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, the queen of Rocksteady, Phyllis, uh, uh, with Kingston Ten at the Whiskey, that was. Uh, 2001, I think just before, just shortly after 9-11. Uh, right, right. Mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she she was an incredible vocalist and a really, really sweet woman. Very, very thankful and welcoming and, um, you know, good conversationalist. And she, and she wasn't one of those people that, like, wanted her own space. I think she really, really liked the fact that she had all these people that loved her music and loved her so much. Um, I also loved working with Kingston 10. I thought they were an incredible band. It was really, um, the beginning of my relationship with Corey, um, and playing with him and how much I, I loved working with him. Such an incredible musician. Um, and yeah, it was just super fun. I think, uh, Robert also played guitar on that. Um, I made some really Amador. I, I just remember those, those bands in those times really. Mm -hmm. Really nice. So the King of Scare, uh, uh, he's been here numerous times. I uh, remember on one occasion you worked with him, the rough and tough all star, the whiskey. So that was 2001 as well. Right, right. And yeah, he's one of those artists that uh, I work with uh, different times and also in different, not eras, but, you know, uh, with years apart. So it wasn't like a back to back to back. Um, and he's another one that's it's uh these there's a reason why these artists are still remembered 
you know, 50 years, 60 years later, um, their music is timeless. Like he had hit after hit after hit after hit. And uh, he has kind of a higher voice. And at first I didn't, you know, you see these headshots and you're, you don't really know sort of what, and they're from, you know, when he was practically a teenager. <laughs> and then you see this grown man who's just this towering giant. And at first I found him kind of intimidating, but then he has this sort of uh, sweet quality about him. So, um, and he's very, very, uh, I don't know, when we were in the studio, it's just very positive. And a lot of these artists, I think they're, they're extremely thankful. I mean, they could be really hardened with, with the history that, and the, the, the lack of recognition and lack of financial, um, you know, uh, success from all of the music that they've created and, and this empire that they've essentially paved the way for, um, that they could be really hardened and negative. But I found them all extremely um, warm and uh, just appreciative of these musicians that take the time to learn their music, that know the music as well as they do, and to you know, we, we take care of the, it feels like, you know, when you have a pet, you want to leave it with somebody that really cares for that, that really, really take care of it as if it's their own. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they have that sort of idea about musicians that really do their homework and, and play their music as well as they do, mm -hmm. um, that they, they're, yeah, they, they're just, it's, it's a pleasure because they're, they're so happy. Mm -hmm. um, that that we that we we taking care of their music yes. as well as we have. Next is Prince Buster with the Agro Lights at the Sierra Nevada World Music Festival in 2013. But for the record, I think Derek Morgan had like six songs, the first artists, recording mm -hmm. artists in any genre of music because the radio stations in Jamaica used to play a lot of American record mm -hmm. records. He who pays the piper calls the shot. Right. Derek Morgan came. He had six. He held. I think from number one to six, which has never been done before or after. Mm. And yeah. you have all these American songs that shortly after there was independence. And we saw a shift in focus to more Jamaican music and mm. about the time of independence. But then we only had two radio stations. So when you mentioned hits after hits, it was really delicate. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Prince Buster just as spectacular. Uh, you guys backed him along with the, uh, you were with the Agolice, the Sierra Nevada World Music Festival. Yeah, and, and I think recently in the last couple of years, somebody posted like the whole set. Somebody reported, I think it was Bernie from uh, Riversidal Syndicate Records. Right. He was at that show, and I think he was in the back by the the studio, or you know, the uh, the front of house. Um, and he, I think he recorded like the whole the whole show. So we saw it was it was really fun, sort of re reliving that that set. It was. What was it like working with Prince? Huh? He was great. Um, totally, prof you know, very professional. Um, again, the music was super fun. Uh, the band was super motivated to do a good job for him, and I think he appreciated that. Um, I mean, between you and me, I felt like the the billing or the promotion or whatever it was was, uh, you know, he didn't have a lot of people in front of him compared to the, the later sets, mm -hmm. which was a little bit sad, you know? It felt mm -hmm. like we put in all this work, we, we 
you know, traveled really far. He obviously traveled super far. And we it would have been really nice because we played great. I think good energy and this, the, the music was amazing. You know, we did a great job. Um, but you could tell he was a little bit, a little miffed at like the turnout. I think it was know? the fault of the promoter. They had another band on. The timing wasn't right. I yeah. don't remember the name of the band, but another band was on the other stage when right. he was on that stage and people went to the other stage. Yeah, but so I think he was a little bit. Had appeared at, there was his second appearance. Mm -hmm. A lot of people had seen him prior. Okay. So, so those two, uh, those factors uh, work against him and didn't work in his favor. Yeah, because so I know that he's... And the time yeah. was not right. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely legend status. And I think if that show happened in a large city, because a lot of those festivals are kind of in the sticks, you know, um, where if, if they had it like in the heart of LA, that same show, the place would have been just busting at the seams, I think. Yeah, no, but the first time when Prince Buster appeared there first, yeah, he was in conversation with the promoter, Warren. Mm, yeah. And he said, you know, Prince Buster charged too much. And I said, Warren, I can convince you that Prince Buster is the only artist on, on, on planet Earth who people travel from all across the 52 states to see. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Friday evening, they sold a thousand tickets more than the previous year. That's the mm -hmm. fact. Yeah his first appearance and, and people did travel from all over. I'm sure, I'm uh -huh, sure. Right. I think again, when, when we talk in- Again, wasn't right. The second appearance was to relatively close to his first appearance. So people opted to see the other band that was mm. played. And I don't remember exactly who. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, so that was, that kind of tainted it a little bit, but mm -hmm. honestly, it was uh, very memorable. This was a long time ago and I still remember it very, very well. I remember the rehearsal beforehand um, and I re remember the set also playing with Tom. I've, I played with Tom Cook for, for years and years and years. We've done so many, it, right? yes, right. So many different things, including Western Standard Time. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's kind of my, uh, my horn, horn buddy. I mean, we, we did tons of shows together and that was one of them. Mm -hmm. And he's a, he's a solid rock of a musician and he has the, he's a really smart guy and he knows the structure of songs super quick. I always relied on him to know when to come in because he, he knew he knew every song backwards and forwards. You know, he's a multi-instrumentalist. Oh, he is. And he's, when he's a brilliant. Keyboard, when a keyboard player uh, left um, the Debonairs, mm -hmm. he started playing. <laughs> right, yeah. Yep. He can do it all. Absolutely brilliant. So he's we're also a great engineer, too. Right, that I didn't yeah. uh -huh. yeah. Right. So Rico, so the trombone wizard, the, the, the giant, got trained by the great Dan Drummond. You also work with him, mm -hmm. uh, I think with Kingston's Gear Collective in the city of Pomona, 2006. Yeah, we also, I did it with a slightly different band um, in Hollywood also. So I, I played with him, I think it was like back to back nights, right? It was, it was like the same weekend maybe? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, incredible. And, um, he, he has a good uh, sense of appreciation for, for, for the brass. Doesn't matter who. Oh, yeah. 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 His, his, his appreciation is profound. It comes across. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and um, I think Roger played keyboards for that. I think uh, David Urquidy played in the Hollywood one. And mm -hmm. he's in. Yeah, there are a lot of. And Chris Murray was a part of it with the. I don't know. It was super fun working with him, but also it was. It's really fun working with other musicians of like minds where everybody just worshipped his music 
mm-hmm. worshiped him and we all did a really good job because we we like i said earlier we really care about this music we care about the legacy we want the artist to be happy and and also the fans um the fans at this point are just as important um to, to please because all of them have such a a fine-tuned ear for this style of music because they've been um listening to this great high level of this style of music for years um that they know the difference if if you're doing a good job or not and they'll let you know you're so. not kidding <laughs> and last but definitely not least we have owen gray again but by western uh, sorry but by kingston Ska collective also in 2006 that was a wonderful year for vintage jamaican music oh absolutely you did work with owen yeah i worked with owen um and also um i did uh the set with dennis al capone too that night mm-hmm. i sat in with one other one but I just remember being so starstruck and the the venue was so incredible and uh, that was the first night that I met Gil Sharon and I was just rubbing elbows with all these these ska legends that I've never seen before and I was just wowed by the whole thing. I was a when I wasn't playing the sets, I was you know out in the crowd just enjoying it all. It was it was an incredible night and really appreciate you guys doing that. I know that you guys went far far and wide and 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 it uh was not easy to do you know yeah. and uh we really appreciate it, the fans and the musicians yeah those were the two shows at the fonda yes okay. that venue is incredible that's that's the same venue we uh we uh opened up for the the bostones um when mm-hmm. they came in that was a nice big show for us too mm-hmm. you mentioned dennis Algapone. have i left out any legend who you have worked with uh, we, I recorded on Everton Blender's album. Um, yeah, that's contemporary. Yeah. Um, and that was actually through the Agrolites. Um, okay. But let me see. Oh, the Jamaicans. I worked with uh, De- the Delirians. We did a show up in uh, yeah. San Francisco with them. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So, um, and those those are the more... The, the the legends yeah yeah mm-hmm. so uh, um we've basically covered all the legends you've worked with i think so yeah mm-hmm. right and what are some of your uh career highlights that you want to share with us career highlights um with i think a lot of them were the shows that we did with with all the legends all, all the legends shows were definitely a highlight um my first show with the Allentons was a big highlight. You know, seeing Hepcat live for the first time was was definitely a highlight. <clears throat> um, but from a personal standpoint, pretty much the last ten years have been a highlight for for with with the Western Standard Time project. It, it really breathed new life into my passion for the music and kind of uh, feeling like. Um, I'm doing something that mattered and that people will remember and that that mm-hmm. is improving the world in, a, in you know because you as a musician you always want to think that you're making the world a better place by by making music but making people happier you know giving people an outlet you know when they're feeling sad they pop on your music and and they you know it helps their mood and you know it unites people and so as a musician you especially 
musicians that play in bands and play out. Mm. That's, I think, a big part of our um, identity and our calling for why we do what we do is, is because we feel like we're making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I feel like the last 10 years have, re have really done that, mm -hmm. you know, from the get go. Um, mm -hmm. We got a lot of really good um, feedback and our first show had, you know, thousands of people there and um, everybody was there to, to check it out. In Pasadena? Uh, no, the first first one was in Hollywood and Highland. I was there. Mm -hmm. Yes, a lot of people were there. That, that was the thing I thought, you know, people that had didn't have to be there all decided that that was the place to be that and there were people that, was that flew from new york i heard people from actually from europe flew out for it um people canada tijuana what's that people came from as far as west tijuana yeah tijuana and then um also i know a person who ended up doing a write-up for us um came from minneapolis and they're just you know it was it was an incredible night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. It I was also uh, think that this past well two Saturdays ago um, in Pasadena was also a highlight. You know, audience response. You know, after, yeah. Well, not the end of the pandemic, but for people who've been locked up. You know, mm -hmm. in home with kids and you know. Just yeah, and we also rough time. Rough time. They came out and boy, I saw the energy it was uh, breathtaking. The beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was a highlight. And I've sure. numerous times. For sure. Um, yeah, th there, was, there was something I can't necessarily explain, but the feel was different. Yes. It wasn't necessarily even the number of people. I think we're the same way like, Ah, there's something that happened. Yeah, a lot of people came up to me. I was at the merch booth, you know, like, because I was on the, the, the exit where people were leaving. So many people came up to me. People were tearing up. People were saying, you know, we flew from this, this different place. Or there were people that also that said, we've never seen you before. This is incredible. You've got a, a, a new fan for life. Like all these people were were so um, communicative about their feelings, you know, where people, most people before you just be like, great show. Mm. But, but it was this sort <laughs> of like, that, thank that you so much for doing this. This uh, is, you know, it was, uh, it was a different, different feeling. Right. And what was the date again? I think if I'm not mistaken, was uh, November from for remembrance of posterity. That was say, say one more time. When was the show? Um, this the date. The date. Oh, November twentieth. Uh, our our yes. album release was November eighteenth. Right. And it was November twentieth. Was uh, the actual the Saturday. Yes, a very memorable show. Uh, a night that defies the ordinary understanding. And speaking of understanding, I want to introduce now my good friend Eric Kohler is a producer. Oh, hey, Eric. Fun. He has some fun questions <laughs> that he wants to run by you. Absolutely. Good to see you. I've, I've, been, I've been enjoying you too. walking down memory lane with all these wonderful legend shows of, of which uh, I saw you play at, at each one of them over the years. And unfortunately, I missed the show at the Lodge Room. I was out of town. I heard nothing but amazing reports, saw some wonderful videos and photos. I was at the very first Hollywood Highland show. We should give thanks to Jose Riso and, and K Jazz, right, for that. Right. Um, so there were a number of, you know, because it was part of the jazz series, number of jazz fans that were there. Yep. And the first and probably the only, you know, ska band to, to play as part of that series. And yeah, it was it was a wonderful mm, night. Okay. Really, really, really enjoyed that. Um, 
But, yeah, they didn't know what to do with all the dancing. They, <laughs> they had all these seats, but everybody was like kicking the seats over. And yes, yeah. I remember. Yeah. I remember it well. Um, I also remember, and, and we might have reminisced about this once since, but but uh, for the sake of Junior and and for our our listeners and viewers, I specifically remember, and I vividly remember, Aton. It was a Super Bowl Sunday. I was I was I was in Hollywood at Trader Joe's shopping, you call me and you say, Eric, I want your thoughts on this idea, mm-hmm. of this big band that I, I want to I put together. And you, you, meant, you referenced at least Joey and Corey, if, if others as well. Mm-hmm. And I said, Aton, it's an amazing idea, but it's, it's nearly impossible. How, how are you going to do this? You know, talked about the, the sheer quantity of players that you wanted. I said, I have no idea how you're going to do this, but you know, <laughs> good, good luck. I love the idea. <laughs> you know, want to, want to support any way I can. And fast forward, that was, that was, I believe that was after Kingston Scott collective, right? And, and yes. Um, so, so sometime in the late two thousands, but mm. so obviously kudos and big congratulations for everything that you've worked so hard. And I know that, that both Brian Dixon and, Brian Walls, you know, were, were were instrumental as well in the early years, and 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 so many part of uh, you know so many players from the scene, and and I know it takes so much time and energy and and and, and finances, and, and and you being a family man, there's a lot of challenges, but congratulations on everything. Yeah, thank you with, with, with the band, and and congratulations on the brand new release, Tombstone, as well. Yes, so I'm 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 loving it. Thank uh, you. Yeah, just, so just a few questions here. Um, so was it was it a conscious decision? And you answered this a little bit earlier, but to to transition from primarily a Scatolites tribute band, right? We won't use cover, but tribute band mm-hmm. to now focusing more on originals. So, so take us through that little kind of transition or journey. Yeah. Um, well, I felt like it was important when we first started forming the band that we would give all credit to the originators of the music. It, 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 yeah. made, it made perfect sense. I felt like there wasn't really any other reason or any other scenario that would make sense to me to start the band was right. to be not necessarily uh, give it lip service or sort of make it a mysterious aspect of the band. I wanted to be front and center that this is what we're doing. We're thinking and giving tribute to the, the originators of the style of music. Um, so it was very uh, explicit, you know. We we uh, I had my my good friend uh, Benny Goldman create ten charts um, of not necessarily the songs that were necessarily my favorites because some of my favorites were some of the more obscure ones, but I felt like sort of create that first album um, for the fans in terms of like the popular most well-known songs mm-hmm. to give tribute to them. So kind of like a, a Scottalites big band version of like Bob Marley's uh, Legend album or something, you know, right. something, sure. something that's, that would be accessible to a lot of people's ears. Um, and uh, with volume two, it was sort of like, it started that, that um, process of going deeper into their discography and, um, and, pulling from some of the, the lesser known uh, titles. Um, and then also we did also some songs that weren't necessarily specifically Skydalite songs. 
So um, we were starting to already pull away, even though it's considered volume two mm -hmm. each of the Scottolites, there were some tracks in there that weren't necessarily uh, Scottolites. Right, songs. they were maybe part of the Jamaican songbook, but they were not Scottolites. Exactly, so right. I felt like it was considered a tribute to the Scottolites, but it was really a tribute to Jamaican ska as a whole, mm -hmm. you know, to all the artists. Right. Uh, and I think that's also an important part of the story that we wanted to tell. Um, we didn't want to make it seem that the Scottolites were the one and only people that uh, created um, something that was of worth, because there were a lot of great musicians and also people that worked with the Scottolites but weren't necessarily specifically members of the Scottolites, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, sort of derivatives of. Right. Um, so that sort of got that idea already um, this was good six years ago but uh, that idea of okay we need to start and and also we had fans come up to us and people interview us that said have, have you ever thought of um writing your own music mm -hmm. have you ever started and that that really gave me that impetus to like okay i need to do this and i have music in me i have written music before um i can do this and so i just started writing and a lot of it was just me sort of singing melodies into my phone, mm -hmm. um, transcribing certain ideas, um, and just um, making our, our own voice, uh, um, you know, of, yeah. with, with the same format, but yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's still extremely unique and, and obviously powerful, both on record and, and obviously live set. So um, it's, it's, it's working, it's working. Yeah. Um, you had you had mentioned both um, uh, Jesse Wagner and Chris Murray over the years, both live and on your previous records. You've also had some amazing vocalists. Uh, oh yeah, talk, talk about it and at least at least name name them if you can. Yeah, so the list is kind of long, um, <laughs> but we uh, our first first show we had uh, Gina. Um, she she sang for that first show. Um, but we've had um, Queen P, uh, we've had the Expanders, mm -hmm. uh, we've had Alex from Hepcat, Greg from uh, Hepcat for quite a few years. Uh, we had um, Angelo Moore. Wow. Fishbone. Um, yeah, we had obviously Chris Murray, Jesse. Um, I know I'm missing people. Uh, Colin, right? Yes, Colin has uh, sung with us um both in the studio and and live right yep um i feel like i'm missing people i know that when we played up in uh canada we had uh, i can't remember her name from the kingpins how about mali did mali play with them oh. malik did mali yeah, malik yes that that one that one show that we did um at the dub club at the echoplex oh, right. yep yes malik sang um yeah, he's saying at least a song or two. So that and that was that that show was kind of a feature of vocalists. It was yeah. sort of the idea behind it all. Yeah. Now amazing. Um, let's touch on touring because uh, you have you have toured. You played Mexico City. You played over in Europe. Um, talk about some of those cities and countries. Yeah. So we did um, our first big tour. We actually played um, in Mexico City. And the idea was to play two shows in Mexico City, fly back to LA, 
and then fly to Europe and do um, a couple weeks in Europe. So we, uh, we ended up just doing one show in Mexico City. It was a big show um, um, with um, a, it was like Nutty, they called it the Nutty Ska Festival, hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, at a pretty large venue, um, I think like a 2000 ca- capacity place. And it was pretty darn full. I, th- I don't think it was sold out, but it was like 17, 1800 people. Hmm. And that was incredible. I've never been treated like a star before. And I couldn't walk through that venue. People were, I couldn't get through the venue. People were accosting me and every, (laughs) they wanted me to take pictures and sign the albums and this and that and go, you know, I want to buy you a drink. And they started, you know, it was, it was amazing. Um, And just, how loud they are and how much they dance and sing along with you. Even though we're playing mainly instrumentals, they're singing all the melodies with you and they're hopping up and down. It's like a a soccer stadium, you know? So um, that was amazing. And then we, we flew back uh, to LAX for a few hours and then had a connecting flight to, uh, to Europe. Um, And then we played a number of shows in Belgium. Uh, We played the, the Melkweg, uh, Milky Way in, uh, yeah, in the Netherlands. We played a couple festivals in uh, Germany, um, Switzerland, uh, Spain, three shows in Spain. Barcelona was a definite highlight. Mm. Barcelona is kind of like a, probably the closest to Mexico City in that kind of energy. Great town, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was a big venue, and they loved it. And they were the same thing. It was like the the singing out loud, almost you know we're 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 twenty piece orchestra with microphones and speakers, and these people are singing, yeah, pretty much that same volume. We could hear them pretty well. So, and and, and when you were touring touring in Europe, did you supplement any of the uh, any of the musical spots with local musicians, or did you bring? Yeah, local? it was it was impossible. I don't want to get into the dollar amounts, but I lost a lot of money um, in Europe going there between flights and traveling and, mm, yeah. and all that. Um, Y'all in personal money? Oh yeah, all of this is my money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's a uh, it's been an expensive but extremely fulfilling mm, years yeah. with a band. Um. But yeah, it's a total DIY thing, you know. Um, but uh, back to what you were uh, asking about, I, I wouldn't have been able to fly out 18 to 20 people. Right. It would be yeah. impossible. Yeah. Uh, flights are 1,500 each. And yeah, that's not the kind of money we're talking about. But um, I made some really great contacts with some amazing musicians over there. Um, the, the keyboard player and bass player that we were using um, were from Mr. T-Bones show. And they're actually uh, expatriates from the United States. (laughs) And um, so they they were living in like Italy at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So they toured with us and they're actually, both of those guys are back in New York, but um, yeah. So anyways, I had them and I had some really great horn players. um, But for the most part, the core of the band was, I think eight, eight of us. I think went out there. So it was a good, good chunk of us. So it wasn't like a complete cover band. Yeah. You know, there's some bands that call themselves whatever they call themselves, but it's just really the singer. And then they have the whole band out there. We're trying our best 
to uh, to give them Western Standard Time, not a cover yeah. band. Yeah, yeah, you did what it took to keep the authenticity right and, and what the band was about without breaking the pocketbook even more. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Brian Dixon was there, Corey, uh, Tom Cook, Brian Wallace, yeah. Greg, me. I mean, it was like sure, it was yeah, us. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, are there plans to you know since you've backed so many legends? I mean. Is that in the cards in the future? We've thought about the idea. Logistically, it's difficult. But yeah. my personal goal with this band is to play a venue like the Hollywood Bowl and have somebody like a Derek Morgan or somebody that's really decorated in the scene and do a big band version of their music, yeah. all their music, yeah. in front of a sea of people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I could, I mean, the vast majority of this band, not me included, unfortunately, have played that venue. So it's not a far sure. stretch yeah. uh, you know, to, to go there. Um, the band is the caliber of musicians that would play that kind of a, a venue. Yeah. Uh, but I think it has to be, you know, making whatever 15 arrangements of this person's music, whoever that would be. Um, would would be time time consuming and also expensive yeah but it's not impossible yeah no it definitely happen. brilliant idea it reminds me of i saw the dvd um concert of uh john holtz and freddie mcgregor both backed by the london philharmonic yes. <laughs> orchestra i don't know if you've ever seen that um yeah. there's probably some clips on it online but yeah Brilliant and beautiful concert. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that, that's another thing um, that I could see us doing, obviously not in like a small club, but like a place like the Hollywood Bowl, where we would augment the group, where it would be the big band. And they've done things like that before, where they have a big band, but then they'll also yeah. have a full string orchestra behind them, or in front of them, I should say. Yeah. Um, and like Sting has done that before. Sure, sure, you know, sure. uh, and it, it translates musically very well but also uh it sells tickets because it's like ooh, that's different i want to see that it's, i saw culture club do that as well at the hollywood bowl uh, and, and right? you did something with with yeah. yeah 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 no that's it's it's great um so so obviously covid the last year and a half has been challenging in many ways um i'm sure it threw a wrench in a lot of plans that you had but um looking in next year i mean broadly what what's on you mentioned earlier a little bit about uh, some some shows coming up, but but what's what does twenty twenty two look like? You think um, if you have a crystal ball for Western Standard Time? Well, I think we'll do similar things to what we were doing pre COVID, which is doing these kind of spot, not full tours. We can't really do four to six sure. week or eight week tours like some bands do, but. Um, continue to play in different markets and bring the music to, um, you know, we're talking to Europe again um, to go back there. Um, we already have some offers there, which is exciting, but I think we would probably work with um, the the music of our new album mainly. You know, that's usually what people do when they go on tour, they're supporting an album. Uh, we would play, like we did at our, our album release, play a good chunk of the music from the album, including Chris Murray's uh, tune and also Jesse's tune um, and hopefully work with them. Um, we're also, you know, we've already talked to Jesse about possibly doing some stuff out of, you know, overseas. Nice. Um, 
So, and I think we're also, um, from a logistical standpoint, it's easy to, for us to work with the AgriLites because we're good friends, but um, also we have some personnel overlap and um, we, they're, we're also booked by the same agency. So um, they're just over, next to over, over in, in, uh, in Europe or here? No, here. Oh, okay, cool. Here, yeah. So uh, the the, uh, the combining of the two groups makes a lot of sense. And I think sure. um, billing wise and logistically and everything, I think um, we would we would do well in a lot of different markets. So, um, but we're, you know, we're talking to Mexico, we're talking to Europe, talking to Canada. Yeah. It'd be really great to go down to South America. Brazil's would, would be a great spot, um, you know, so Argentina also would be great, Japan. So we're we're looking at it any and all possibilities. Jesse can come out wearing his wearing his uh, dapper suit playing with you exactly, guys. Exactly, right. Change into his into his you know more aggro uh... Yeah, the all black or the the, you know, the spray paint or whatever. I love it. I love it. He, yeah. he's a born he's a born crooner for sure. He is and he's very versatile. He can he, he can croon on one set and you know Yep. Grit, grit it on the other one. I, I never forget the first time I, I saw the agrolytes and the spectacle that they that they are, and they continue to be, obviously, and, and yeah, uh, still remain close with those guys. Um, let's take it personal as one of our last questions. You're a husband, father, obviously a musician, band leader, um, teacher as well, right? Yeah. You, you, for a long time, taught music. Uh, touch on that. Yeah, so um, I have been pretty much doing music as my career since I was a teenager, uh, where, whether it be playing um, live or, or teaching privately or teaching group lessons. Um, but for the last, now it's, yeah, it's 20 years that I've been teaching uh, wow. public schools. So I've been um, either elementary, middle school or high school band director. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a big part of who I am as a musician, as a person, is as an educator. Yeah. So, um, and I remember doing also some uh, in-school performances where we would, uh, even full spectrum, we would go into some of the schools and perform for them oh, and show yeah. them uh, Naya Bingi drumming and how that formed into, uh, you know, like kind of that master class kind of a thing, but making it sure. fun for the kids. Yeah. Because um, I think it's it's fun for the kids to know that if they're playing clarinet or saxophone or trumpet or trombone, um, or even guitar for that matter, or drums, that um, there's cool music out there Absolutely. Where, where they're not necessarily playing something that was written three, four hundred years ago, that, that they can see themselves doing something kind of more exciting and electric. And, and, and there's music that's different than what you might hear on on. Well, I don't know. The kids are not listening. Kids are not listening to the FM dial anymore, really. But no, right. Different than than pop, than pop yeah. music or hip hop. And or, it's interesting when you see those kids where they're kind of that light bulb goes off, where they're like, "Whoa, this is different," and I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's the human spirit isn't supposed to only like one thing. We're not robots. We're not all the same people. Where where you you need to expose people to different things, and you yeah. can see that you know, there's something else out there. And that's why some kids really like classical music. Some people really like hip hop and some people really like ska and reggae. So. Yeah. So, so since you've been teaching for, for 20 plus years, have you noticed 
any difference in the students as it relates to um, the music programs or, or, or um, uh, I guess the question is, is there, is there as many, is there as much interest, less or more interest by, by kids um, taking, you know, taking the music and um, is the future looking bright for, for live music <laughs> musicianship? <laughs> Yeah, you know, honestly, that's a tough question uh, to answer. But um, one thing that I have noticed, and it's sort of the uh, a reflection of sort of music in general, is that I think a lot of kids don't really know what real instruments sound like. Mm -hmm. What real drums? It's scary. Yeah, they, they know voices. No, since the uh, hip hop, right? And then reggae dance all. Right, right. Uh, I mean, pretty much. You know anything anything in the pop world you're either listening to electric drums or some kind of like you know yeah. effect on something yeah. um auto-tune yeah. um you know everything is overly produced and compressed and all of these things and the, there aren't necessarily real drums real tracks it's all a lot of these songs are created on a computer on some kind of a workstation keyboard yeah. Right. Uh, horns aren't real you know there's a lot of that stuff so i really like the fact that we're doing what we're doing where you know one of our hash hashtags sometimes on instagram and facebook is a hashtag real instruments because i think it's important for people to hear what a real drum set sounds like and what a real uh trumpet sounds like and real yeah. saxophone sounds like no it's um, mm -hmm. yeah you know so um and that's why I like what I do is because the, the kids do get exposed to that. And I'm in a position where I can come up with my own curriculum. I can show them what, you know, ska and reggae. I, I taught a history of my, my high school teach, uh, teaching career. Uh, one of the classes that I taught was music history. And you can kind of teach whatever you want. So you can teach American music history. You can work, teach world music history. Yeah. You can, and I end up teaching them about the history of Jamaican music and how important that is in, um, you know, in uh, what music is at this point. Without, um, without, I know also, without reggae, they would not have been hip hop. Yeah, and, and it reminds me also- <laughs> All the dance music, no. Right. It also reminds me of Brian Wallace. Um, he was a band director also for, I don't know if you knew that about him, but he was a band director up in uh, Tuscadero. Penny Real, Penny Real, where uh, Joanne and Brandon were students, yeah. Yeah, he actually formed a ska band at his school. That was a class. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's like he's, just he's, like jazz band. He had a ska band, and he exposed all these uh, young kids to this music yeah. and show them. You know, it's uh, the same kind of concept where you know, as a teacher, you can teach them the same thing, or you can you know, come up with your own, you know, your own curriculum. No, well, keep, keep going, keep going with that. It's super, super important. Um, and, and back to part of that question, how do you balance family uh, work that, that pays, you know, that pays the bills and yeah. then passion, which, 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 um, you know, is your creative outlet and, and, and maybe, maybe someday, right. Also pays the bills, but, but how do you balance that? Yeah, it's tough. Honestly, this this band is if you could think of a band that would be really, really tough to start and definitely <laughs> to keep going, this would be it. It's, uh, mm -hmm. 
yeah, I, I created a monster. So uh, <laughs> you it, didn't it, mention that is the primarily labor of love. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah I mean, I would not be doing this if I didn't love this music. Right. I would, I would be insane um, if I didn't like this. So um, I feel like it's my calling. And um, so I find time. But I really it's a full time job, honestly, um, between um, the social media, the merchandise, the marketing, the booking. For a while there, I was doing all, um, most, if not all, the booking. Um, getting musicians when we were traveling, we have to I have to book the flights and the hotels and the uh, the vans. Like two jobs. <laughs> getting, getting the musicians and and you know sending them press kits and you know input lists and you know it's it's uh it's kind of this endless yeah. thing. I mean, ultimately, it makes you a good organizer. What's that? It makes you an incredible organizer. Yes, absolutely. It, it teaches me a lot about uh, patience and hard work and um, delayed gratification. You know, it's it's just for the first six years, I was just hemorrhaging money. I mean, it was just like money, money, money. It was just flowing out, and we weren't really doing a whole lot because you know, that first year we played one show. Mm-hmm. We played one show in 2012. That was it. So there's only so much you can do with one show. Yeah. Um, but luckily, I think a good five, six years in, we started getting that momentum where um, things started happening. Yeah. But with that comes also more work, you know, and um, getting getting the musicians in place because there's absolutely no way to keep 18 people to rehearse or to play shows. You constantly have to have this revolving chair where you, you know right who's going to play, be playing third trombone in this you know who's playing second trumpet I, you know it's it's it, that's part of the job so yeah wow well um it's on any closing thoughts before we uh we call it we, before we wrap it up here well um i mean i want to say thank you to you guys for for doing this and having this outlet um you know because <laughs> you guys are in your own ways huge huge not necessarily from a musician standpoint you know you're not musicians but you are one of the the important pillars of this scene um and sort of behind the scenes um a big big part of things so i i want to say thank you to you guys for sure and um some if not most of our best shows um um you have you have uh, brought us on and uh, made everybody super excited. Yes, <laughs> you are the MC of MCs. And, <laughs> that um, is true. Junior Francis. People yeah. are very, very excited to see you bring us on. And we're, we get 10 times more pumped when, when you're the one bringing us on. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I did feel it uh, the other night, two Saturdays ago. I said, damn, where am I? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, uh, I would love to take you on tour. <laughs> all this pent up, you know, just, I mean, I haven't introduced anyone in two years. You no, know? Pe- people exactly. love you and you, you do a lot of great work in the scene and both of you guys. Exactly. But um, I think for closing thoughts, um, I'm very thankful to the fans. I'm very thankful that I, I met Mobtown that night and I was mm-hmm. exposed because my life would be, I don't know what my life would be, honestly, at this point in my life. Um, if I didn't have the ska scene and the friendships that I've made over the years and um, I'm addicted to this music and um, I hope I that, that I'm doing it justice <laughs> and I hope to continue doing what I'm doing. And uh, 
see where this where where it takes me. So yes, uh, yeah, no, that's that, those are some great closing thoughts and and, and uh, the the nineties ska scene definitely mm-hmm. um, you know so memorable, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and special in many many ways. And um, you were you were you were a big part of that, and you continue to be a big part of mm-hmm. of the music that we that we love so much. So congratulations, Aton. Where can fans um follow and, and and find out about what what you have going on um so it's really platforms right yeah it's uh mainly three letters so wst ska wst ska so if you find us on instagram it's at wst ska our website is www.wstska.com um and so if you look at us look for us there um you know, yeah, Facebook, all those places, but we're mainly uh, focusing on Instagram, but a lot of it transfers over to face, uh, Facebook. Um, but if you're looking to support the, the band, um, in terms of getting the the records and the CDs and the the shirts and all that stuff, which really honestly helps so much in, in this world where there's so much streaming and the, the artists don't really get any kind of, um, money from that, that buying one shirt is like mm-hmm. you know, 10,000 streams or something. Excellent. So um, it's, mm-hmm. if you're um, thinking about supporting the band beyond <clears throat> going to a show, um, getting the merch there on, on our website would be a, you know, something that I would, mm-hmm. the band appreciates and it will go back into the constant funding of, of this uh, huge band. So Very well said. Yeah, very important to support the bands and the music that you love so much, Junior? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I searched extensively and it was really hard for me to find information stating precisely and exactly when Western Standard Time, what year was formed. So for the record. Okay, so um, November two, uh, 2011 mm-hmm. was when we first, first got together officially in the studio to record our first album. Mm-hmm. We had never really had a rehearsal or had any kind of a, a band meeting or anything like that beyond just the three producers, me, Brian Wallace and uh, Brian Dixon. Um, so that November 2011 is really what I considered the formation of the band. And that's actually that weekend, that next weekend was when we first opened up our Facebook page because oh, okay. that was the beginning of we want to let people know what we're doing and uh, try to get a following. And it took us all that time. August 14th, 2012 was our first show. So it took us that whole time to actually get the show. And then, um, you know, the al- that was our album release. Um, so that's, that was the beginning of the band. So that's why right now that, that show, that uh, November 18th, uh, 20th show, I felt like that was our 10 year anniversary. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As well as our, our album release. So indeed, there we go. Mm-hmm. Well, I will definitely be at your next, uh, SoCal yes, show, uh, whenever mm-hmm. that will be. Well, so, yeah, it's coming up. It's coming up soon. So, yeah, we're doing Morro Bay, San Jose, and the, we've got some other things in the mm-hmm. in the works in LA and San Diego. So, all right. Aiton well, Avenir has been our guest, uh, trumpeter, Los Angeles based teacher, father, a band leader. You wear so many hats, I would need all night to uh, introduce <laughs> you. Uh, but importantly, and really significantly, uh, founder of Western Standard Time, the largest, I guess, Kia Orchestra in the United States. Uh, that speaks volume. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yes, man, speaks volume. Uh, you know, you 
were able to uh, make your idea come to fruition. So really and truly want to thank you. I'm Junior Francis, Eric Holler. Yes, uh, yeah, he, he's a brain behind this, you know. <laughs> yes, uh, so I'm gonna urge- I our, make a good team, so. Yes, <laughs> for many years, right? Thank uh, you. Yes. yes, please follow us. Any other way. Please follow us at History of Alaska on Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our Facebook group. Please follow me, Junior Francis, that, at uh, Junior Francis. And uh, this series was produced again by my good friend, Eric Kohler for the Rockery Radio. Please follow at Rockery Radio underscore, Rockery rather underscore radio at Instagram for fresh rock, rhythm and soul and Jamaican music inspired daily playlists. Uh, tell us a little bit about the playlist before you, the playlist. Music, music that uh, myself and my uh, other partner in crime, Sean Heitkeeper, uh, curate and put together mm -hmm. just daily daily for fun yep Pushing that out there man works like a firefly <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes well, but yeah congratulations junior thank yes. you as always for mm -hmm. another wonderful show Aton, thank you for, for everything over the years and um uh we know there's much more to come throughout 2022 for western standard time thank you for all of our viewers and listeners and the ongoing support and until next time we're signing mm -hmm. off have a good one take care everyone thanks guys Bye bye